Cinema Sex Ed contains strong language, sexual scenarios, and potentially offensive comments. It is intended for maturely immature audiences only. Well, if you just want to see me jack off, it's 10, but if you just want to look at it, it's on 5. Cinema Sex Ed. Welcome back, class. Thanks for being here. You might be wondering about a few changes we're making over here at Cinema Sex Ed. First off, we want to give a shout out to Miss Marcy, who will no longer be joining us so that she can focus on her other personal projects. But we do want to thank her for her contribution to Cinema Sex Ed in the past and wish her the best in all she's doing. We hope you'll follow her and her work. You can find her online at theactorscircle.com and on Twitter at theactorscircle. You can also find her writings on medium.com. I also want to extend a heartfelt thank you to the infinitely talented composer Eben Schletter for his awesome theme music. You can find him on Twitter at Eben Schletter, E-B-A-N-S-C-H-L-E-T-T-E-R, and Robert Bailey for his voiceover work. This episode we're covering Paul Thomas Anderson's 1997 classic film Boogie Nights, rated R for violence, nudity, drug use, and all that good stuff. This movie stars Mark Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Heather Graham, Don Cheadle, Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy, Louise Guzman, Alfred Molina, and many other recognizable faces. The music was by Michael Penn. Set in Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley from 1977 to 1983, the story follows the meteoric rise, fall, and redemption of Eddie Adams, aka Dirk Diggler, during the later years of the Golden Age of Porn. This two-hour, 35-minute film was made for $15 million and made $43.1 million. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, and Burt Reynolds took home the Golden Globe for his portrayal of adult film director Jack Horner. As of 2016, the Los Angeles-born director Paul Thomas Anderson is the only person to have won all three director prizes from three major international film festivals, Cannes, Berlin, and Venice. I'm joined by screenwriter Kyle Panikamp for this conversation about the cultural and artistic merits, cinematic elements, and social messages on sex and love that we can take away from New Line Cinema's Boogie Nights. You know, I did sound in college. Did you? Yeah, for Linklater. I didn't know that. Yeah. For years, after my fresh, freshman year, I interned there, and in the next three years, I just always worked for him, just like project-based, doing sound. It was cool. It was fun. Sound is a fucking bitch. Yeah. And they are like the most undervalued and member no of just, the team. It was, it, was, it was so funny to be on, like... How does Link what? later deal with sound? Does he? Oh, is it no, important so, to him? Yeah, it is, and he's just. Sweet. I mean, most good he's filmmakers, just, it is. He honestly is just sweet to everybody, but it was just so funny because like the head sound guy, this guy, his name was uh, what was his name? Ethan Andrews, and he worked with Rick for years, but he was like, um, he was really like, he's kind of a prickly guy, and he just used the same every single time. It was just he would, if someone said, you know, when is sound gonna be ready or blah, 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 whatever it was, he'd be like, I'm sorry, are you making a silent picture. And he would just like say that every like he said that like thirty times a day to everybody, and it was just. But it was kind of true. I was like, it's a it's a snarky little comeback to have, but it was like kind of true. And he was a real he was a tough boss, which was good. Cause it, like that taught me more. I think about 
you needed to talk boss at that time. Well, I just think that taught me more about, like, what the film industry was actually going to be than anything I did in film school. You know what I mean? Just, like... Doing it is so... Film school, I think, is really important if you know exactly what you want to do. Like, yeah. if you're going for screenwriting yeah. or you're going for directing and it's something... Like, for me, if I went to film school, which obviously I never did, I was never driven in this direction... But if I went to be a director, I'd be going to learn how to use all the equipment yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the like you're talking about working with that guy, the you don't really learn the business till you are working. No, agreed, agreed. My when I was in film school, when I was in actual school, I mean, I did writing and directing, but then really the best part about it was that it was just your excuse, like well, I gotta watch three movies a day. <laughs> I have to. It's my job. You know what I mean? I was like, that's what I'm here at school for. It was just it's great, so hard. Yeah, it was just a great excuse to do that for four years and really do that. But I agree that the one thing I learned about the business was like, with the sound guy, it really was, it has to be perfect. Like, perfection is expected when you're making movies. And that was such an interesting thing to... There's nowhere else in life, really. In my life at that point. But isn't really. perfection... Here, I'm going to get existential. Isn't perfection subjective? No, not in sound. <laughs> All right. It's out. It's between very specific DBs, and you know what I'm saying. Like, how did you end up there, doing the sound? It was part? I, I, I mean... interned with him, and we got along really well. And so then he like recommended me to intern on a project he was producing, and I literally was just like a producer's assistant or intern. And then someone in the sound department, they the third guy went down or got sick or something. They needed a third guy, and Rick was like, "Why don't you do that?" And I was like, "Sure." You're, I'll do whatever you say because it's like, I'm just happy working for you so I worked and did sound and just got along with him and uh, just kept coming back as like the third guy in that crew it was fun it was an awesome thing to do during college and they like paid after the internship the rest of the time it was paid which was nice um, that was cool that was a good job did you ever think before then that you would be doing sound? no <laughs> okay so then so then as a writer has that work doing sound affected the way you think about writing or you approach writing i'm sure it has i mean we definitely write we use sound cuts a lot i mean wait as reasons to cut across from one part of the scene to another we use sound a lot i don't know what that had what to do with it or not but so you, when you're constructing scenes you're thinking about that yeah so yeah, I guess it probably did. Look at that. I just learned something about myself. <laughs> okay, but I didn't go to film school, so how much about sound do they teach you in film school? I think they taught you how to be, like, if your buddy was shooting a movie and he needed you to do sound, you could do a very basic, proficient job in sound. But you never, but that was, like, the shit job to do. Like, right. No one's like, oh, I'm, I'm here. I want to be the sound guy. But weirdly, I did do that when I wasn't directing. Like, but I was just, like, help pitching in on something else. I was always did sound because I was the only one who knew how to actually do it. But I did sound on probably, like, 30 student films. And Holy college. shit. <laughs> yeah. So, so you always have something to fall back on. Yeah. No, I could, I could go do that. No, I did, like, because everybody was just like, hey, are you around? Because I could just, me showing up would be the best sound they were going to get out of the film school. So if somebody just generally didn't know what they wanted to do, but knew that they wanted to get into the movies, sound would probably be like, nobody is driven to go into, or no, very yeah, few people no, are driven. So. No, I agree. Well, no one, I don't think anybody goes to film school and is like, I want to do sound. I would imagine people Which come Which is weird, to because it. they should, actually, because it can be kind of awesome, but... But you would think they'd come from music or... I think they mostly some do. Some other kind of... 
I think I think the guy Ethan. I think he started doing sound because he did a lot of concerts and stuff like that too. Actually, I was supposed to do backstage sound at a Bruce Springsteen concert <sighs> in Austin, but it was the night after Clarence blew his eyeball out of his head. Oh my god! In Houston or Dallas, so they canceled the Austin concert. And I was, and I'm a huge Boss fan. And I was like, it was just like it was. So, totally disappointing. I was, like, really sad that he lost an eye. I mean, sure, that's very... (laughs) Of course. It's tragic when anybody loses an eye. But really, now I can't hang out backstage at a Bruce concert. Which sounds like it would have been a fucking blast. Thank you for doing this and being part of this. Being a... a, an adjunct professor at Cinema Sex Ed. I I like it. Um, I was thinking about, is it better to have a guest lecturer? But then you're not really lecturing. No. Yeah. So, or, or should I welcome you to the faculty? This is like a seminar. <laughs> this is like a seminar. It's a seminar. And when it's all done, I'm going to ask you to invest in some condos. Yeah. And if you'll just stay for a short presentation. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, it'll come up on the screen. So, welcome back, class, to Cinema Sex Ed. This lesson, we are covering Boogie Nights. And I am joined by my friend and wonderful writer, screenwriter, Kyle Pennekamp. Hi. And thank you for being here. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Earlier you were going to tell me, and I told you to save it, I wanted to hear when the first time you saw this. Did you see it in the movie theater? Did you? No, I did not see it in the movie theater. I think the first of his I saw in the movie theater was Magnolia. But I think the first time I saw it was freshman year. Just in my dorm room, I was just like, I think I had that, there was that Blockbuster deal. Do you remember where you could pay like $30 a month and every day you could just go get a new movie? No, but remember, I'm like 15 years older than you or something. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm like okay. 10 years older. It was a good deal. It was a good deal. But And I think I really just started at their like director section and it was... Right. Well, A. Yeah, exactly. And I think I just saw, it, saw it that way. Um, but yeah, I hadn't seen it until my freshman year and I was just in my dorm room and I just watch it on my screen in my dorm room. I think I had a girl over. It was fun. <laughs> but that was, that was the first time, and you know, it was funny because I really, I really fell in love with Paul Thomas Anderson. I just love his stuff and it's one of, it's the one of his that I had never kind of gone back and rewatched. Like, I've seen There Will Be Blood tons of times. I've seen Punch Drunk Club tons of times. I've seen, you know what I mean? I've seen a lot of, and Magnolia a million times. And I just, for some reason, never went back and watched Boogie Nights again. So I just watched it again a couple weeks ago. And I, it was amazing. I love it. Obviously, it's great. Or we wouldn't be talking about <laughs> Well, we might be talking about it. I, I'm not averse to talking about bad movies, too. Which <laughs> I know you can have a good time doing as well. But, yes, P.T. Anderson's amazing. And I, I'm wondering, when you were re-watching it, was there anything that was different than you remembered it? There is something... I found it much more, and maybe because I was just older, maybe because of, I've seen a bunch of movies and things like that at this point, but it, it seemed much more to me also an interesting cultural history of California. And I think one of the reasons that I say that is because I went and saw Inherent Vice. Oh, and I right. love I love the book. And I always, and I thought going into the screening that he was a really interesting choice to make to film the book because the book is so much kind of about all the movements and all of the... Have you read it? Have you read it? No. Have you seen seen the movie? No. But it's all about kind of this wave, the way he talks about it, of of the 60s, all 
changing culture and all this and how then it got kind of co-opted by the system and by money and pushed backwards and I think that was the point of the book was that and I was like oh that's an interesting choice P.T. Anderson to do it because I wonder if he's going to bring to it the feeling of oh when I got started in the mid 90s and then through the first probably half of the aughts like oh man independent film was amazing and we were getting to do anything and Pulp Fiction changed everything and I was getting to do all these weird little movies and now I've been kind of shunted outside the studio system and and that's kind of how the industry pushed us back in the late 90s. But, but then when I saw the movie, I realized, oh, no, he's... And he talked about it afterwards. He was at the screening. He talked about it afterwards. He was saying that he grew up in L.A. And to him, this was like a time capsule of his Los Angeles life and history. And that's why he was interested in Aaron Vice, was how different Los Angeles has been. And so when I watched Boogie Nights again, I kept thinking, of it, oh, how does he view Los Angeles? And how is this kind of like a historical record from him of of his childhood and the things he likes about the myths of Los Angeles where he grew up. Yeah, it's set in the San Fernando Valley in 1977. And I think he's he's like my age. I think he was born in 1970. So, um... Anderson? Yeah. I didn't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah and, uh... Yeah, I know that all of the locations are in the valley which for anybody who might not know is really has been traditionally the hub of porn right the san fernando valley and vegas now is you know i think it's still a big part of the valley i mean when i lived remember that my house and i lived in van Nuys with a bunch of guys and we had we didn't have a laundry machine so we had to walk just like two blocks to laundromat or whatever but every once in a while we'd walk our clothes down there and it would be closed and blocked off with these giant black you know, blinds because they were shooting a, you know, there's a whole subgenre of laundromat porn and this was evidently one of the places where they shot it. And it was just like, I was like, wow, this is, it really is true. Like, this is really what the Valley does is make pornography. And it was really weird to step into that. That is really funny. And I could never look at that washing machine. I oh, I know. I mean, that's we would always joke about it. I was like, I mean, do I need to wash my hands after playing Gallagher? Or like, I don't know what I need to do. But it was, uh, it was funny. And then you go into all the old diners and stuff like that, and you could, they're old. I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I'm saying they're, there's a certain body type. Yes. For female porn star. And you could kind of like see the older version of that yeah. around you. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. They're... Um, always walking on the track i mean not all of them but there are those types walking on the track By your new yeah place. across our, yeah that's hilarious yeah and i have that same thought but at the same time at this point <laughs> in our culture every, you know it's hard to know anybody that's true too. older that's true too. like you know but yeah it's more just made for a better story if i thought that about the people around me oh the, no it her. is yeah. though <laughs> I passed Vivid on my way here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That huge complex huge. right across from Universal Studios. Yeah. It's the biggest porn... Is it? Is it the biggest? ...production. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's... I, I don't know have all the details on this, but it's not publicly traded. There are only two porn production studios companies. Uh-huh. And um, I don't remember. One is... One is Spanish, which I find Wait, these are publicly traded companies? Yeah, on the NASDAQ. There's two of them. And, and what they do is porn? Like, that is their main business is pornography. Yeah. That is incredible. It, That's hilarious. Yeah. Or, okay, it's probably not... It's probably adult entertainment. No, right, but I'm saying, right, yeah, yeah, they're not... <laughs> so I, I found that really... Call my stockbroker. But then I, I wondered, and this is a totally different discussion, like, why wouldn't Vivid want to be... 
publicly traded, but I, yeah. but maybe it's a control thing or a money thing or, I don't know, purity. But it, it makes like a hundred million dollars a year or something like that. So but I know you're joking about like, you're thinking about purity. Like that's what, another one of the things I found so funny about Boogie Nights watching it this time was like, the, like, the Dirk Diggler and what is Burt Reynolds' character's name? Jack Horner. Yes, Jack Horner. I mean, they're, they really like are, they're talking about Shooting on film and oh, yeah. stories, talking about like really keeping this like purity. It's and this real nostalgic. It, it it has a hilariously nostalgic view of pornography that mm-hmm. cracked me up throughout. And it's great. Film school rejects had a thing where they t- were talking about the commentary with him. And oh, I haven't listened to it. Yeah, I haven't either. And apparently, one of the things he talks about, P.T. Anderson talks about with the. Sorry. Velcro. <laughs> Fucking Velcro, man. As a sound guy. Is Sorry. that a good idea? No, okay. Um, but that P.T. Anderson said he wanted to make a film about the porn industry that he would want to see, that would have everything that he would want right. to see in a film about the porn industry. Like, so the good stuff and the bad stuff. Right. And this was happening in 1977 was right before video really right. became huge. Right. And changed it, and there was this vanity, this period that they call the golden age of porn between 1969 and 1980. So let's talk about the future. Let's talk about what video means to this industry, and let's talk about how all of us, not one of us, how all of us are going to profit. 1969, Warhol made Blue Movie, and that sort of legitimized porn in this art form huh. and then there was uh is that it, i am curious yellow when did that come over oh i don't know probably in that period of time yeah. 70s because then you have like the devil and mrs jones which roger yeah roger ebert like loved um i think i mean i'm curious yellow was much Lugs. more like political about it but its whole point was like can't we see this as works of art well that's the whole thing so in 1973 there was a the Supreme Court ruling Miller v. California, which the verdict was basically that anything lacking, quote, serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value, unquote, is not protected by First Amendment. Huh. So. What year was that, really? That was 1973. Okay. So it's referred to as the Miller test, as if something, looking at something for its literary, artistic, political, or scientific value, uh-huh. which I think is very interesting to think about anything, especially today on TV and everything, right. all the stuff we see. But in terms of porn, I guess the industry really, they started to feel like they'd been legitimized in some way. And so trying to give it this artistic value did become this goal. That is, that's fast. I had no idea. <laughs> I felt woefully uneducated. Did, did they lift that? No, it's, it's pretty. Still it's thing? still a thing, yeah. but it's just changed but because it was really the advent of video that changed it. Yeah, because I mean they would, they would just put it in movie theaters, and I mean everything was done. I mean, and they talk about it in Boogie Nights about yeah. the change from, from film to video, but and then video changes later on to DVD yeah. to internet to cell phones, and it's all business. It does seem interesting the way technology seems to have driven that form. Well, something I read talked about how when porn embraced VH, VHS, okay, it 
like, completely negated the Sony Betamax. It, like, uh, drove the Sony Betamax. Uh, it was the porn revolution that drove Sony Betamax out. out of even the, though the Betamax apparently had better quality. It definitely had better quality. That's hilarious that that's the <laughs> one of those secret reasons why that's hilarious. Isn't that weird? Um, well, I also read that porn is also the reason why streaming has gotten so good. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. I mean, it, because it's big business. That's what I'm saying. So they, they will invest in that sector of technology. So that's the other thing about like the quality of film or filmmaking that they were trying to do now. People just fast forward to whatever they want to see. That's hilarious. You know, so you're getting to your favorite blowjob or whatever, and you're not looking for story. <laughs> There's a funny part where he's like, he's like, and when they're done, they won't turn it off. They want to know what happened. Whatever Bernard says, like, it's a right. great series. Like, and they will sit there in their chairs. No. This is a film. I want them to remember me by. And that's one of those things that I kind of love about this family of characters in this movie is that they all have these dreams yeah. that are driving them. Well, it's so funny because I would actually love to kind of if I wasn't as lazy as I am, I would have done it right away, but just watch 42nd Street again because they're both kind of, they're almost the exact same story of the like rise and fall of slash backstage drama behind an entire business that was like, that ruled a whole town for a time. And Yeah. I'm like, wow, I never even thought about that. But, but that, I'd be fascinated to like watch to see how they both play back to back, like scene wise and things like that. Because I think, like, Showgirls is exactly 42nd Street, scene for scene. Well, Showgirls is also all about Eve. Yeah, that's true. Too. Yeah. But there is familiarity to the yeah. story. Yeah. No, it's like, it's funny because it is the classic rise and fall. And it's, that's what I like about PDA is, like, he can't... Scorsese does this, but in, like, a different way. But I'm saying he, did, he can't help being operatic. You know, like, he like he loves Douglas Sirk movies. He lo clearly, I'm saying, he loves... I'm sure they're, like, Nicholas Ray movies. There. I'm sure, you know what I mean? He just likes these... He has to make everything into this giant three-hour opera. I think that's just funny. To put, I'm saying I think he was very smart and he was a very funny guy. To decide, like, I'm going to do that, but for porn. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that is a, that's an inherently comedic, funny concept. Well, he made a short film. Oh, really? When he was 17 years old called uh, something, The Dirk Diggler Story. Oh. And it's... You know in the movie when they do the interview with him and oh, it's sort of like the yeah. John Holmes documentary, yeah. right? But So apparently that's what it was. It obviously wasn't the same cast, but it was that part, like the right. little mockumentary. And then this, you know, was something he went back to many years later. But if we actually did the rise and fall of this guy, that's funny. Right. But, and I guess it was something he really wanted to do, but he was really freaked out because he'd had such a bad experience or, or a challenging experience on whatever it was he did before. Heart Sydney? Eight. Yeah, or Sydney. Heart, yeah, they, they right. And they, they ch changed the name or somebody yeah. changed the name. I don't know. I think he had a tough which is a great film, by the way. It's really good. I've never seen it. It's really good. Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this one single scene where he's like running a craps table. I'm saying that he's just like can't stop winning and that's the only scene he's in but it's the best scene in the movie he's in. anyway so yeah so the Dirk Diggler story was something he did in high school which is that's funny crazy <laughs> and then so when he was making this deal 
he was determined that he wasn't going to get, like, fucked over by the studio. Uh-huh. And so he demanded that it had to be three hours in NC-17, and, and if they didn't let him make the movie he wanted to make, then, you know, he was out of there, blah, blah, blah. And so I guess Mike DeLuca was like, look, dude. That's amazing. You can have one or the other. You can have NC-17 or three hours, but you can't have both. Right. So he said, okay, fine, I'll take rating R. I'll, I'll face it like a challenge. And then the movie ended up being under three hours, too. Huh. <laughs> but it's funny, that, that the little uh, making of the little documentary that Amber Waves does in the middle of it has my like, new favorite shot of his, which is when it's like uh, a close-up with a, with a long lens of him like stepping out and like, putting uh, a knee up on a fence and like his... His elbow on his knee and his, you know, his fist to his chin and like looking out and then there's all like a, contemplative. And yeah, and it's like you're looking out over this a great vista, but then when they pan left, he's just looking out over the empty LA River. And that's like my, yes. that's like my new favorite PTA shot. But but I was also really taken by shots like that because, like I said, this time having had that experience of of having him talk about inherent vice and that, that's clearly what he was into was the history of LA about, around it. I really just watched it through that lens much more this time than I was watching it through any other sort of lens, and it was fascinating just to see how he brings that to it too. Like for him, it's like like you said, like, <laughs> what is he? What is nineteen sixty nine and nineteen eighty to him in Los Angeles? The golden age of porn, right? It's like, well, how old were you when you saw your first porn? Do you? Oh God. Do you remember? Yeah. But it was like it was at a party, and someone's parents had like just left, and they like popped it in for like I'm not even joking ten seconds or something with the party, and then the parents pulled back into the driveway, oh and so he like stopped the tape because he didn't know who it was. It was and it became this like great comedic scene where the parents came in and had forgotten something, and they were like just walking all around, and we were just like just do not turn around right now. There was like frozen. <laughs> poor TV behind you and they didn't see it and they left that was that was the first time <laughs> I, don't, I don't know when I was it was just like a party situation but that was at like probably 16 or 17 I was late I was late to the party did other people you know have it or watch it or if they did I don't think it was really talked about I mean there's not I mean listen I don't know I, I, I don't I'm, know I'm, what I'm, happens I'm, with the guys I, I'm thinking back I'm thinking back I mean there was like jokes but I don't think it was like, I think today it's pretty prevalent and pretty yeah. everywhere. I think it's a, like topic of. Oh. I get the feeling that for young people today, it is a like topic of conversation that goes on all the time. Right. Whereas, like, it definitely was not for us. I don't think, just like porn and the porn world and all that. But it's like again, that was a time like DVDs didn't really get big till after high school. I'm saying just the, the medium of DVDs. So it was all like people had VHS tapes or cable. Cable. Yeah, I think everybody watched the Squigglies. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, I don't know. You were born about 75, but the, we had these we had these knobs, and you try to get it right in the, between the middle of the knob, like between two numbers. I'm, I'm making a That's gesture hilarious. here. Like, <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, I think there was like... So old school. The Playboy Channel or whatever it was, was like Channel 99. I'm like something like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't have this memorized. <laughs> well, then they had like you know. I mean, Cinemax became Skin. Anything like HBO After Hours or there were always 
the, oh yeah, no, there's sort of the soft core yes, things, yes. but like hardcore porn. I think the first time. Oh yeah, that I, was I. Oh, but even like a videotape of something. No, I'm saying like yeah, much older. I think. Yeah, and, we, I think, and I think just because, like I said, the medium was different, and it was like. <laughs> yeah. I think honestly, like. VHS tapes were really big and they are fucking hard to hide. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, that's like, it. Like, I, I remember being with my friend Devin and her mom was out and we were like looking for something in a closet on a top shelf. Yeah. It was like a shoebox. We're like, what is this? And we must have been maybe 12 or 13 years old yeah. and there was, <laughs> it was like a shoebox with sex toys and sex tapes and. Not her her mom's sex tapes, but porns. And right. So it was like, let's put this in. Yeah. And it was kind of crazy. That's no, like the was, first time I'm... And I, it was funny, and it wasn't because we didn't want to, but I think it was literally just like, how does one go about... And like you said, a parent could come in at any minute. Yeah. I think we did similar. And we didn't have like, we didn't have... <laughs> it's like all those kids these days are so lucky. But... No, but like legitimately, the only screen we had in our house was our television. I didn't have my own personal computer in my room. I didn't have, uh, you know, access an iPhone or any. I could. I didn't have like video all around me at all times. There was like there was one screen. There was the television in the living room, and like that was the screen I had. Yep, same. With That's us. harder to get to yourself. Yeah, and and unmonitored. Yeah, so that's what I mean. That was just. Yeah. Uh, which, which is just funny because I, I, I assume kids It's a different say, time. Yeah, I assume it's just like anytime they want. Whenever they want. Stylistically, I mean, I know you've, you've named some things, but what else stands out to you about the film? I always love how he does long takes. Like, I think he gets this sick cinematic glee out of composing these long takes and coordinating them. And it's awesome. It's hilarious. But it also, because he does things like that, you get these great, like, the one thing I remember is they do, um, the scene where Dirk finally comes and he's just, like, really fucked up and he comes and he basically gets in the giant fight with, with Burt Reynolds and they break up as a partnership. That's right. Like next to the pool. Yeah. Like, because they compose it for so long and he just has Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley next to him and he clearly just told them, like, I don't know, just do something, be funny. <laughs> like, you have... John C. Riley doing a bunch of like karate moves and Phil Schubert Hoffman I know this is radio and you can't see it but he's like doing an arm stretch where he starts with like his fist under his chin and then he slowly goes but because the tape goes for so long he ends up like getting where he's turning like halfway around it's just funny you know what I'm the biggest star here man that's the way it is I wanna fuck it's my big dick so everybody get ready fucking now so I think he I think it's a very like I can't I don't know it's a word I read and don't say a lot, but gigantism or that literary movie, you know, and it's, I feel like he, he loves that. Like, he loves the operatic flair of all of it, and I think he does all of his scenes in a very consciously, they're very consciously directed, much more so, I think, than kind of his later stuff, which doesn't feel as, like, made by a director. Does that make sense? Who's, like, manipulating the things within a scene. Oh, okay. So you don't, you feel like you're conscious of the directing? Yeah. In a way, but in a way that's funny. Right. He's a, a funny way. person, so I'm always like laughing at what he's doing. But I definitely think he, his scenes feel composed for the camera. Or, you know what I mean? In yeah. A, in a way, but I, in a way that I think he uses as a joke, especially in a movie like this. I think he's trying to be very funny. In. Whereas I feel like later he's very much. I mean, all the shots are beautifully composed, but I feel like he lets Daniel Day Lewis take you through the action more. He lets 
Right. That makes sense. It does to me, yeah. When you think of it in terms of his catalog portfolio, however you put it at this point, he was still, there was still something young about the filmmaking, yeah. but it's still so good. Oh, it's like, it's incredible. Like, it's I mean, like, he's, he's one of those guys like, who comes, I don't want to say almost fully formed, because obviously he does develop so much. Like, There Will Be Blood is an incredibly different movie than Boogie Nights with different goals and different ways of looking at movie making and all that, but he does come with so many tricks already in his bag. You know yeah, what I mean? Where yeah. it kind of feels like, and no, not in the same way, because obviously I think Jaws was just one of the great movies ever made, but I mean, in the way you watch Spielberg, that was really his second movie, and you're just like, oh shit, like this guy, oh. Right. He, he gets everything. Like, he's, he is, he's the whole package. And I think that's kind of when you see PTA's early movies, all his movies, but especially his early movies, you feel like, oh, this guy's got like a lot of, he knows his movies, and he knows all the tricks you can do, and he like, in the same way Tarantino does, like, people say, oh, these guys, they rip off so many shots, but, the, but it's... But when I look at it as somebody else who like loves movies and hopefully somewhere close to as much as they love movies, that idea of but for them it was a really fun day on set. Yeah. To, to try and copy a shot from you know, a filmmaker that they really look up to. You exactly. Know, I think like for them that, that is was a fun way to spend a day on set. And I get it. I think that's great and infectious and carries over into the whole how much you love the whole movie. It's an homage, it's a it's it's an honoring yeah. of it as well. Yeah. And the thing that really struck me rewatching it was how many different genres it kind of yeah. went through as well yeah. in one film. And when that's done well... Is there a great book of interviews with him or anything? I haven't... I don't know, but apparently anytime you can listen to commentary, because he said... In some, I, I guess, did watch. I've watched the Magnolia commentary, and it is fantastic. I guess he said on the Boogie Nights soundtrack or, or commentary that that he, for him li watching DVDs or discs and listening to the commentary was his film school, like uh -huh. was a big part of it for him and how he really learned how to make movies. So it's really important to him to give good commentary That's in that cool. regard. No, I, and I agree that there. Are, I mean, there are. I remember specific commentaries I've heard that have like I remember certain things from whether. For, funny personality reasons or like I remember the usual suspects commentary was great and was very educational for me like as a senior in high school when I was like wanting to go into movies and I remember uh, I think I want to say it was Ocean's Eleven maybe Steve Soderbergh did a great commentary oh, in the room where he talked the whole time he talked a lot about his whole concept of rhythm and release is when you're building a movement and then you gotta get the audience released and I still remember the phrase rhythm and release and how he did it and there, there are certain ones that like when people really put when when people who are very good at their job really put the time in to explain the choices they made, it's always great. I think it's so fucking cool that he has that attitude and yeah. it's important to him because that's how he learned. Another good guy to do commentaries, Oliver Stone's commentaries are great. Not because he talks so much about the filmmaking, but because he makes movies about subjects he cares about so deeply, like the JFK assassin or whatever that literally if you watch the JFK commentary he will, it's an alternate movie. Like, he just takes you through so many facts. He's I like, here's what I learned. This is what this is what this scene is based on, but here's all the stuff I learned about this scene that I couldn't put in the scene. And you, it's like a whole different take on the whole event. It's fascinating. It's, he's, anyway, that has nothing to do with Boogie Nights, but... I think it's interesting. Because I don't really listen to commentaries. I always have the drive to, right. but I don't really do it. 
And I think, oh, I'll do it another time, and then I never get back to it. The only one I've ever listened to was on the anniversary edition of Showgirls. Huh, and yes. It, but it wasn't, it wasn't Verhoeven or, I forget the other one. Um, but it wasn't them. It was this guy. Mr. House. Esther, thank you. It was this guy who had taken showgirls around to college campuses uh-huh. and shown it and uh-huh. done a whole commentary throughout it. And he was always waiting for UA to contact him with a cease and desist. But when they contacted him, it was to do the commentary on this special edition. That's fantastic. And it's hilarious. And I own it. And it makes me very That's happy. That's a huge Paul Verhoeven. He does great commentaries also about cinema sex. And there's this one I'll never forget. Two of the things he said. I watched the Total Recall commentary, which is great for a lot of reasons. But one of the great reasons is he's, he's doing it with Arnold. Like, they're doing it together. And they're talking about the Sharon Stone scene where they're having sex and it turns into a fight and whoever it is. And they're like, oh, we wanted, we wanted her to show her breasts, but... No, she would not do it. She didn't, she didn't want to do it. <laughs> Arnold Judge, he goes, but you really got her back in basic instinct, didn't she, Paul? And he goes, yes, I did, Arnold. That gave me a lot of pleasure. <laughs> it's just like, it's just hysterical. Like, it's very funny. And then on the Black Book commentary, which Black Book is fucking awesome, by the way. I've Black never Book seen it. so good. But you know the Red uh, the red Witch? Uh-huh. The Red Woman, whatever, on Game of Thrones? Right, Melisandre. Melisandre, she's the star of... of black book and she's incredible in it but there's a scene where like literally he films her like shaving her vagina what? and on the commentary he goes you know people ask me paul do you need to put shots like this in your movies and i think if you know me and you know my movies the answer is yes <laughs> just like... that is also something that stood out to me in this movie was the grooming. <laughs> you were talking about uh, Melisandre shaving herself and then and we're talking about Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct and, you know, right away, the whole roller girl scene, it's uh-huh. like she, what she takes when she is basically auditioning him. Right, and right. I'm sitting here with a water bottle between my legs like I'm fucking... Uh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, when she took her, it was like, I just wanted to stand up and applaud, like, yeah, look at that porch. That's, like, just the yeah. biggest, blondest. And and apparently, like, they didn't even consider her for the role at first because they didn't think she'd do nudity. And her agents called up PTA and said, why aren't you considering Heather? <laughs> Where was she at in her career at that point? Was that post-swingers? That was post-swingers. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but I don't know how far post-swingers. Yeah. I don't know what else did she do in her early in her career. That's funny though. That's hilarious though. Yeah. And she was just like, I'm totally down. She must have. She Obviously. must have been. I mean, she, she's probably naked more than anybody else yeah. in that film. I mean, Julianne Moore is fantastic. Apparently, he said he only had to give her direction once. I wonder if I wonder if that's true. Because I think she performs very differently for different directors. Most actors do, don't you think? Yeah. So who do you think is the best actor in that cast? Well, I always love PSA. Phyllis Robinson's always great. He's great. Oh my god. I was Scotty. Oh my god. That shot when he first sees Dirk. Yeah. And he comes in and it's the tunnel vision. Hey Reed. Hey! Scotty Day, how are ya? You know, you know. <laughs> Who's this? 
Eddie, this is Scotty J. He's a friend. He works on some of the films. Nice oh, to meet you. Yeah, me too. Uh, are you going to be working or? Um, maybe. Oh, probably. That's great. <laughs> That's great. I was actually shocked watching it again because I don't think he did. Mark Wahlberg didn't get nominated, did he, for it? Um, but I'm actually shocked that he didn't because it, it's one of those rare cases, and it is kind of like when magic happens, that like the star and the filmmaker had the exact same sense of humor about the material. Like, the, Don't you get that feeling? Like, yeah. I really got that feeling watching it. That I was like, oh, they're both in on... like They have they have figured out exactly what their shared joke is here, and it like really works for the movie in a great way. And I was really shocked that Wahlberg didn't get... He's doing fine. No one's worried about Mark Wahlberg. But I'm saying, I feel I'm shocked that he didn't. But has he done anything that great since... I guess it was The Fighter... There was yeah, the fighter, the uh, departed. Uh, the departed. Thank you. I, was, I couldn't um, remember the departed. I, I, isn't he in We Own the Night? I love We Own the Night. Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen that. I've seen the other one. He is in the yards. He's, he's, he's great in the yards. He's great. Um, I think he's. I love Mark Wahlberg. But I yeah, I like Mark Wahlberg. I I'm entertained by him, but right. but he's gone the way of he's going the way of like De Niro and like he he him as as a persona now is really large it's hard to get past that it's like it's hard to take the mark Wahlberg out of the performance but i would yeah but honestly that's kind of what makes him a great star that's what stars do it's like tom hanks is always tom hanks absolutely and i think mark Wahlberg has that i think he has a funny presence and i i like that he brings it i love i think he's i do too i'm i'm totally i enjoy it but it's but it's present. I'm just... Yeah. I, it's one of those I can't deny it's there. Right. But I will say... He uses say it was, so well. He uses this. it so well. Yeah. And in this, I remember seeing it in the movie theater. I mean, he wasn't that way. I mean, right. we're watching it now. He, he, I, he still... You're seeing the full Wahlberg. In yeah. It's earliest stages. Yeah. And it's like... But it, there's something very raw and... Um, yeah. And... Nation, is that the word? Yeah. You know, yeah. it is like it's it's not fully formed yet. It's, yeah. This is about to hatch him into a major movie star. He really he was. Was this his first? This was like his first big like movie. movie besides like Fear or whatever that. Yeah, I don't know what his first small one. Thrillers he did. What his first one was, but but yeah, I mean he, he was is... an underwear model. He yeah. was. I mean he had he had success in the modeling and the music world, right? But I don't think he was taken. Nobody knew. <laughs> this is a giant cock. At the end of the movie, with the big reveal, right? Which in itself is an amazing convention. It's just a great joke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like we really like are. The, we the really are going to do this, where we really are going to save it till the last shot of the movie. We're going <laughs> to see like, it. It's really funny. Yeah, it's almost like a MacGuffin. Like yeah. it's like yeah. something you're never going to see it. Uh, no, in the most movie-ish, like, of ways. They really play out the line. <laughs> Have you said, well, that is a beautiful cock. There's <laughs> <laughs> all the lines where they, they really do just Everything play out stops. the joke for as long as possible in the biggest possible ways. It's hilarious. It's really funny. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in action. Jack says you've got a great big cock. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess so. May I see it? Everybody has one special thing, Kyle. Yeah. That's what, like, I love that. Everybody has one special thing. Everybody's got one special thing, and this is my special thing.
What's your one special thing? My drinking ability. <laughs> Oh, oh, so at the end of the movie with that big reveal, all I was thinking was, that's a 13-inch cock and a 17-inch zipper. <laughs> it took me half an hour to get to the cock just with the unzipping. His, pant, his pants were pretty amazing throughout the movie. The costumes, God, were great. But I do remember it being funny. I do remember, because I didn't see the movie until it was out on DVD and like I was in college and it was a few years later, but I definitely remember when the movie came out and they were talking about it and I do remember girls really being like, oh my God, Mark Wahlberg has the biggest penis in the world. And I, I was like, I'm pretty, I was like, I haven't seen the movie, but I'm pretty sure it's like. They really believe that. No, that I think that, yeah, because they just, I, well, yeah. probably because they were high school girls. Yeah, know? of I mean, course. Like, Why wouldn't you? When I, mean, I was in high school, I would believe anything. <laughs> I was an idiot. But, wouldn't that be like a dream role when you think that there are people who. That, that's their first memory yeah. that that is a woman's first memory of you is you on the screen looking like that yeah well I was also yeah, thinking like life, as an actor lives. why wouldn't you want to take a role like what, why wasn't every actor in Hollywood like Lying tripping down. over themselves yeah. like no no I want to be the one with the biggest cock <laughs> I also do actually just think about the name directly I love throughout the movie all the people coming up with their porn names I just want a name I want it so we can cut glass you know like razor sharp razor sharp right yeah, well, when I close my eyes, I see this thing. It's like this big sign. And the name is in, like, bright blue neon lights with, like, purple outline. And this name is just so bright and so sharp that the sign, it just blows up because the name is just so powerful. It says Dirk Diggler. I think... I think heaven has sent you here, Dirk Pigler. <laughs> I think the angels have blessed us all because of you. Dirk. Dirk Pigler. <laughs> and everybody going like, oh, great name. Great name. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's always the reaction. Every episode. What's your point? Name? Of the name. Do you what have is one? your dog and your... Well, it's your first... No, it's your dog and your street. It's right? your first pet in the street you grew up on. I grew up all over. I would say my, my first street that I was born on was Maple. And my first my first dog pet was a dog named Laska. And that's weird, but it'd be like Laska. Laska Maple? Laska Maple. I don't know. I Alaska think that's <laughs> you could have a whole lumberjack thing going on. <laughs> that would work oh for me. God. That would work for me. I need more flannels. But besides that, I'm set. Yeah. You're swinging a big axe there. I've got the lumberjack. Alaska maple. On. I know. Alaska maple. It was just Alaska, but you're right. Alaska maple. But even, like, it could genius. be Alaska, though, with, like, an apostrophe L. That's how I see it. I just see you with the axe sling over your shoulder. Let me tap your tree. Yeah, you're like, I'll tap that. Oh, my God. Sold. Yeah, there you go. Next movie idea. So, Brock Landers and... What is it? And Chest Rockwell? Or Rock... Is it Rock Hard? Rock... Is, yeah, Rock, Chest... 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 Chest Rockwell? Oh. Chest Rockwell. Tom yeah. will be so upset because he loves this. No, those were great. But anyway, when they come up with the names, he's like, oh, great names. Does this character have a name? His name is Brock Landers. His partner's name is Chest Rockwell. <laughs> oh, they're great names. 
and that apparently it was loosely based on, or maybe not even loosely based on, but John Holmes, huh. right? And so, like, the whole Alfred Molina thing in right. the hills was based on, um, on the Wonderland murder things. Okay. Which I remember... Which I don't know that much about. I saw the movie. I remember there being the movie. And, or at least part of it, because I think I fell asleep in it, which is really sad. But there was a familiarity watching, re-watching Boogie Nights. Right. Because it reminded me of that scene. Um, only in in the movie, the Wonderland movie, it was like a big party and not just those. Right. Those people. Alfred Molina got he was great. Apparently he was wearing earwigs. You'll appreciate this as a sound guy. He was wearing earwigs the whole time they were shooting that was playing Sister Christian over and over and over again. That's hilarious. So he would still have that sound. and Yeah. So. It's actually, that's pretty interesting as a sound guy. When I was watching the scene, I was like, I wonder how he got everybody to talk at this timber without actually playing music underneath and have it be so even. That would make sense. Yeah, Tom was talking about that because he said that happens all the time in editing. It's, it's, it's a nightmare for editors. That's why I was like, how did he do Because it's done so beautifully. They're like, what was, I wonder what his strategy was. And that was it. And then I would imagine also when you're editing, you can't just ADR it. No. Because there's intensity yeah. with raising your voice. That's interesting. Yeah. Now I know. Alfred Molina is fucking great. That scene is amazing structurally in terms of how it builds tension mm-hmm. you know the the firecrackers and the music and the well the thing about the firecrackers too is he doesn't actually show you what's making the noise for like the first three minutes of the scene right like you just hear these firecrackers going off and you're really like is this a weird mix he made of this music? i was really saying they were like is this a mix he made of this music off of lean and he's trying like i what is the sound going on right now? It's driving me up the fucking wall in a great way. And then it shows that it's firecrackers. It's like, of course it is. It's... And apparently that was based on a real character or person uh, that he, P.T. Anderson talked about that, about that character being based on somebody real that he'd met. What do you think makes porn sexy or can, is porn sexy? <laughs> I don't know if it's sexy. Sure, it's like, yeah. The women? I mean, I don't know. I'm not... You're not well-versed? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm plenty well-versed. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, I mean, there's different qualities of, of porn, right? I mean, sometimes there's porn that is just really about efficiency. I like simple pleasures, like butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. That's just something that I enjoy. Call me crazy, call me a pervert. I will say, given today's what is out there in porn right now, watching a movie like Boogie Nights, I'm like, that blows my fucking mind that people used to actually spend like time and money making a porn with story and with... You know what I mean? It's kind of just like mind-blowing. Like, I cannot believe people actually spend time and money doing that. That's so... It's so pointless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? Like, it's really... Why is it... Watching, bo- it's like, why? And it's so funny. Like... You mean it's pointless because they could do it for... With less effort and still... Yeah. And just... Really, it's like, no one's ever watched a scene. <laughs> in a well, nobody... Saying, nobody post-1980 That's what I'm saying. Or but I'm yeah. saying, in my mind, I'm like, no one's ever... Right. Like, that's why it's, to me, like, very funny to watch 
that's an added layer to the movie for someone of my generation. But don't you think the porn has, in one form or another, like erotica, adult entertainment, has always existed since the beginning of man? Of like, course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> like since the first person drew tits on no, a cave course. drawing. Of course. Of course. But I, I know what you're saying. It is. It's like it's a completely different time period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean now sites are just clips they're like, it's not like it's not like you watch a movie right it's like you just it's a clip i'm always stunned like in little sex shops where they'll have like the little movies i don't what i, mean, I haven't movies? been in one in so long where like you could put in like a dollar and like watch a little movie oh back in the day yeah saying. yeah but i mean in my lifetime i've i've been in sex shops that had those really yeah but i haven't been in one for a long time that did that used to be a thing, right? I mean, the, yeah. yeah, that's so yeah. Like, no, it's mind blowing. It's but it so is, weird. To it think is about. sad in a way. I don't know, but what that is not that way anymore. I don't know. Well, you know, you're thinking about like <laughs> you missed the days of yore when you had to go out and play <laughs> to, to look at an eight millimeter image. No, 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 no. In, in I the ba- in the back corners of the shopping center. Oh, those were the days. America was so make America great again. They get pumped up with this huge pile of liquid so that's what he means by that yeah no i was thinking about it in terms of like the person going to do that was sad like that to me is like sad like because we know (laughs) i know isn't it i'm putting a label on it but it's the same thing like what you were saying that nowadays we have such instant access to it we can just sign on and and see whatever we want right whenever we want and so it's like having to go and put in a dollar and watch a little thing yeah that you know that's not even like it's not even the quality of a cell phone man i know right. but, it's, <laughs> but it is funny because i think also back then because you had to do something like that to do it you really i think you had to like be at a point in an addiction or you know what i'm saying like that but i'm saying and that's also how it was viewed yeah is that whereas it's clearly just obviously not viewed at all anymore, or should it be? Right. I'm saying, you know what I mean? It was really like, I cannot believe at least in this America, man would was, debase yeah. himself. Yeah, I'm saying yeah. in the America we grew up in, it's like, I can't believe this man would debase himself to like right. drive somewhere and get out and risk people actually looking at him as he walks into the store. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, you, it was really like, it, it just the whole the medium of delivery made judgments very different. Right. I mean, I'll walk into the pleasure chest or any adult toy store, you know, no problem. Right. Like, wherever I am. Not, whatever. Not even a thought like, hey, let's go check yeah. it out, right? Yeah. Let's see what's new. A generation ago, yeah. my mother sure as hell wouldn't no. have, you know, not even when she but was I'm my even, age. I'm saying even when I was in college, there was Vulcan video in Austin and then kind of right at the far end of that Shopping center. I want to say it was the same shopping center, although maybe it was just a nearby shopping center. There was an adult video store, and it was always like, and this is me. I'm a very liberal dude who's in college and loving life. You know right. what I mean? But I would always look out there and like, there's that shady spot on the corner. I'm like, look at that guy going in there. I mean, that is just, I can't believe that's what he's doing. Today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, and it's so funny because nowadays it's, it's like, that's what everybody's doing, right? Because they can just do it at right. home on their computer. And we can sit here and we can talk about yeah. it, and it's not a thing. Yeah, and it was like, it was so, that wasn't that long ago. And it's amazing, man, it really has been technology that has pushed its acceptance, its societal influence. It's like, it's all yeah. just the me. I really believe it's just the means of delivery that has done it. 
Yeah, because I guess there would have been sort of magazines and stuff like that. and But I think that this is just occurring to me right now as we are talking. You know, we're talk talking about the golden age of porn, right? Where they're trying to give the, their movies some artistic value. Yeah. It, it reminds me of Playboy right. being marketed as, no, I'm reading it for the articles, right? right? right. Trying to give it some no, artistic I, literary... No, I'm actually, I'm, fast, I'm interested in how much Playboy had to spend over the years to get writers like Gore Vidal and like these really great writers to write pieces so that the average American man could use that as an excuse well, to buy their... You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> just absolutely. As a, just as a joking excuse, like as... It's fascinating. But, and it legitimizes it in yeah, some way. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. Or was it more that people just, it attracted those level? I mean, once you get, once you get through the initial people. Yeah. Then, I mean, who wouldn't want to be published? Like, fuck yeah, they published Woody Allen and Gore Vidal. Yeah. And they're like. Well, then like, it becomes something sure. fun. Then it becomes a mark. Then yeah. It becomes, yeah. Yeah. And then you don't have to kind of seduce people into doing it. So there were two porn actresses, at least in roles in this. Uh, Nina Hartley played William H. Macy's wife. Okay. And I remember I used to have a DVD, like Nina Hartley's, I think, Guide to Oral Sex. Uh-huh. Thank you, Nina. <laughs> yes. Um, and... And the other woman is Veronica Hart. And Veronica Hart, her... It's funny, those are both names that I recognize, but like, I don't think I picked them out. Well, they... Maybe, they to, my, to my shame. <laughs> so Veronica Hart... So Nina Hartley was William H. Macy's wife. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Veronica Hart... she was Hart, hilarious, by the way. Yeah, she was. Very funny actress. She was great. What the fuck are you doing? It looks like they're doing. It's my wife. Bill? You're embarrassing me. Yeah, little Bill, shut up. Veronica Hart was the judge in the custody case, and the custody case and Amber Waves' character is loosely based on her, apparently. Uh-huh. You're saying Veronica Hart had a custody case? Yeah. That. Yeah, and that was, that was part of that. I mean, that must be very strange, growing up the child of a porn star. I can't imagine. I mean, or trying to raise a child as a porn star, too. I mean, you're raising a child right now. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, how would somebody talk to their kid about that? Like, I guess you say you make movies, or... Yeah, or are they just totally open about it from the beginning? Because they deeply believe that what they're doing is should be accepted socially, and should be, you know what I mean? Like, it's a... How would they raise them? Well, that is one of those things with the... Juliana Moore character that's so tragic is there's so much sublimation you know mm-hmm. she's like she's not being allowed to parent her own kid and so she's like parenting everybody around her right. and it's quite powerful that character is really very moving that whole that whole scenario and that the whole family his whole stable Jack Horner's whole yeah. stable of actors I mean it really brings home like the mundane backstage aspect of the porn industry yeah it's like somebody a friend of mine once saying to me you know the one thing i learned about being on porn sets is never eat the dip you know (laughs) 
Stay away from the craft service. Never eat the dip. You know, so... That's hilarious. So I think about that, you know, like the in-between takes, the... Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously there's the drama and... No, he's like, oh, we gotta gotta switch reels. In the middle of his first scene, like, that was... That was great. (laughs) Was there anybody else that you would have liked to have seen in any of those roles? I can't think of someone who wasn't amazing in it. That's true. Ricky Jay was good stunt casting. I love that scene with Ricky Jay and William H. Macy having a, like a production conversation. Yeah, with the, like his wife. Yeah, with his yeah, wife with, like, getting gangbanged yeah. in the background on the basketball court. Little Bill. Hey, Kurt. How's it going? What's wrong with you? Oh, my fucking wife, man. She's down there, some idiot's dick in her. Everybody's standing around watching. It's a fucking embarrassment. Yeah, yeah, I know. Anyway, listen, for the shoot, I want to talk about the look. I want to see about getting this new zoom lens. Right. I was wondering if we'd be able to look into getting some more lights, too, you know. Jack wants a minimal thing. Yeah, well, very often minimal means a lot more photographically, I think, than, well, I think most people understand. I understand. No, no, hey, I I know you understand. I'm talking about some other people. I think what Jack is talking about is minimal, not really natural, but minimal. Okay, fine. Uh, I was just saying... I understand. Yeah, because I'm trying to give each picture its own look. Can we talk about this later? Oh, yeah. You gotta go somewhere, or...? But that's what I'm saying. Like, that is a very funny scene. That's also a very directed scene. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which I don't think he does. But but he was made... But that is a high... Com- like, Boogie Nights is a high comedy. That, yeah. You know what I mean? And he's... Which is, God, he's great. Would that's, you say it's more drama or more comedy? I think it's all comedy. Especially I think, because... I think dramatic things happen, but I think it's always done in a funny way. My fucking wife has an ass in her cock in the driveway, Kurt. All right? I'm sorry if my thoughts are not on the photography of the film we're shooting tomorrow. Okay? Okay. No big deal. Sorry. All right? Would you say that it falls from a writing perspective into any particular category? The rise and fall of category. <laughs> but done really funny. A hero's journey. Yeah. No, but it, no, it's really like the rise and fall. It's, the, it's any rise and fall. It's, a, it's done as a giant biopic, which is what's so funny about it. Yeah, it's true. And then in the end, though, everything works out okay. I mean, he obviously he goes... That was one of the things that I had kind of forgotten about the movie. Uh-huh. Which I find interesting. What does that say about me? <laughs> The fact that I yeah I remembered it sort of as much darker in the end. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it does it has a very long section where he's melting down. I mean, he has there's like there's it's a good like forty minute section, and I remember I remember the first time watching it, it kind of losing me during that period, and this one this one too. I think I think because I just did find the movie so funny that I think that section. Then you miss it. You miss it, which is obviously the point, but I felt like we kind of miss it for a really long time. Like, the Coke meltdown just lasts forever. Oh, I know. Well, um, and I just love Mark Wahlberg being Dirk Diggler. I just wanted him back. I just wanted Dirk <laughs> to be Dirk! Okay, but wait a minute. In the middle of that meltdown, the recording stuff, when he and... Oh, that is genius. Yes, I, that I, is hilarious. Yeah. It's I, the, you got the touch. You got the touch! You got the power! Yeah, that is, you're right. So I take back everything I said. No, 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 I don't take it all back. I'm just saying that part is pretty, that is, 
I'm like loving. I mean, the moments like that, I was waiting for. Like the running. Scotty Riley is so genius in that movie. Yes, yeah, he's, he's, so he's so fantastic. I mean, and that is like this love affair. Yeah. Those. That's also one of those things you don't have like any traditional relationships. Even no, like you know. Actually, you're right. Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? What do you bench? You tell first. I asked you first. Same time. It's cool. Are you ready? Ready. One, One two, two, three. three. You didn't say anything. Oh, neither did you. <laughs> that first scene where uh, it's that long shot introducing... Uh, at the club. Yeah, introducing Burt Reynolds right. and then into Dirk. Um, I'm sorry, Eddie at that time, right? right. So that it, that was like a love scene, like yeah. somebody seeing a lover for the first time. And I, Yeah, I think the father-son is... And the mother-son, really, with the Julianne Moore. I think those are the two big relationships, really, because you do set up that his, his terrible home life with no parents, and this is where he finds it. You find these two parents. It's fucked up because they're <laughs> making porn, but... This is... I, I thought those two, much more than any... Obviously, like you said, there is no romantic relationship, really. Is there? No. No, I mean, like... And what is the nature of that relationship? Yeah. Because that's really unclear. I mean, maybe they had been involved at some point, but but they had seemed to have Amber Waves and Jack Horner. They yeah. just seemed to have such... They were the mother and father. Whether You never seem to sleep together. No. You? No. It seems like they do. It seems like they have. But I agree, their their role as mother and father is much more important to the family than their role as husband and wife. I yeah. Like. Does that make sense? Yeah. They've really agreed to be the mother and father. They have this great kind of unspoken understanding that you're going to do what you need to do to be a mother to Dirk, and I'm going to do what I need to do to be a father to Dirk, and that's what he needs. That's great. She's the best. She's a wonderful mother, you know. She's a mother to all those who need love. She's really nice. I also saw the murder suicide when William H Macy right. kills his wife. L- little Bill kills Little Bill's wife. In-, in some way, it's so dead on, but it's so perfect. Like marking New Year's Eve, this huge right. tragic event, the turn of the turn of the decade. Decade. Yeah. It's a real mark of things are going to be different now. Things got dark, yeah. Things got really dark well, then. Well, what it really also, I think, shows, and which is why it is kind of a weirdly moral movie, too, is if you continue to act this way, it's not the sex that matters. It's, it's how you're treating the people. Yeah. That you're having sex with them, and it's like, because... And all those chickens really come home to roost, and after that point in the movie, where it's that's why all the you know all the relationships that fall apart do fall apart because they start treating them as people. It's not, it's not about the sex; they can all have sex with all with everybody else, and then right. that's really the point. Yeah. And that's when everything really says: if you're going to treat people this way, this is what is going to end up happening to you. That whole event, to me, I mean, it's in that little contained family and environment, right? I mean, that, that's like the Twin Towers falling, okay? Now, I don't mean literally, but, but it's like this... It's a collective traumatic... Cool takes experience. from Jim Wilson. <laughs> but it's this collective, like, traumatic... Everybody who's there. Right. I mean, how could you not be affected by that? Also, it's I don't this... think they even talk about it or mention it again for the entire rest of the movie. 
Which is really interesting, just what that says about them as characters. Yeah, and everything falls apart at that yeah. point. It's like this. The, it's like you can't even be in the same room with one another. And I, I think, isn't that that's the first night that Diggler does cocaine and right. it, you know, and he says something like, "Do I look cool doing this?" Like that's. I mean, it's so sad, but it and is. And doesn't she give it to him? Yeah. Yeah, she yeah. makes him. Amber waves him. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. She is a heartbreaking character because she's so wonderful and sweet, and then, but she's so destructive to herself and to others, and it's all because of this heartbreak. Obviously, he's a really good writer. Yes. <laughs> he knows what he's doing, and he, he builds a great character with her. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is so tragic. I mean, they're all beautifully tragic and and real and. I'm impressed with all those characters and the performances, like you said. I don't know that there's anybody that you could replace, but I know, like, they, they talked about... Who else had been offered the role of Diggler? Oh, I guess when Paul Thomas Anderson saw Basketball Diaries, uh -huh. he wanted either Leo or Wahlberg. Uh -huh. So I guess Wahlberg's in Basketball Diaries. Okay. And Leo went to go do Titanic. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that's when... At Wahlberg, but I guess also Joaquin Phoenix had been considered at some point. That doesn't surprise me. As well. Just because, is he like known as being really hung? I mean, why does that <laughs> not? Oh, I guess because. I, like... I think he's a deeply strange, funny guy. And yeah. I think he like understands the larger jokes, the larger ideas of the movies he's in. And the way, like, that's what I'm saying. He's like, I really think the melding, like, Wahlberg and, it surprised me you say that, that they wasn't kind of hatched between them in a way because they are so clearly in sync with what the big joke of the movie is. Exactly, because I can't imagine anybody else right. in that. Right. And part of the genius of... No, it almost feels like they came up with the basic concept together, which obviously they didn't, but I'm saying yeah. I, they do feel so in sync comedically right. as a director and actor in it. Well, and then Burt Reynolds hated him and did not enjoy the experience at all. Hated Paul Thomas Anderson or hated Paul Thomas Anderson, and then Mark I Wahlberg. and then um, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't clarify. So with Paul Thomas Anderson, he hated, and he hated working with him, and um, he saw the rough cut, I guess, uh -huh. and he fired his agent, and or he huh. or, or he may have seen the final cut. I, I anyway, so but he saw it and he he fired his agent, who he said he made him do that and whatever, and he was done, and then he ended up. Winning all these Yeah, he, he was nominated for an Academy Award and won the Golden Globe. Because yeah. it was only nominated for actress for Juliana Moore, actor for Burt Reynolds, and then screenplay. Screenplay. But not directing, which I find surprising, but I don't... I didn't look at what was up against it. Maybe if I looked at other things, I'd what be like, year ah, is it? 97. So next year will be the 20th anniversary of it. Uh, yeah. That's crazy. Bro. That is crazy. So what do you think it says about sex? This movie says about sex. Does it have anything to say about sex or or not? Well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that part of it is like really that it starts to treat the sex as totally incidental in a way that it's much more about. It seems like his relationship with Amber Waves actually doesn't change when they have sex. Not that I can remember. I mean, it's really more... It, it continues to be kind of mother-son, which yeah. is whatever it needs to say. But it's interesting because it does have... It, they do go through the punishment phase of... Like, when they take the risk of doing the, like, when they try to do the limo porn. Yeah. And that, oh, that that's... just goes so badly. And it's like, well, if you... 
you know, at the end of that scene, you're thinking, like, well, of course it went that badly. Like, if you really look at it from a human point of view, like, there's no way this is going to end up, this night's going to end up going in a way that's going to make you feel good about yourself as a person. You know what I mean? And it really starts to, and maybe it is because of, because they switched to video and all that, that they, they are really kind of leaving the confines of their family. And that's what's interesting about the first half, is that they're really, they're, yes, they're doing all these things that you're viewing as morally questionable, or that are viewed by society as morally questionable, but they're doing it within this small family that all cares about each other, so there's never any harm. Right, it feels safe. There's never any harm coming to any of them, because the whole thing feels like a very closed loop and a very closed system of we just, we're all just a bunch of friends who love each other making movies together, and then when they start trying to engage the real world, like with her old ex-classmate that comes into the limo, Right. It's like, oh no, there are people out there who are having thoughts and having judgments about what you do for a living, and you're not, you th- in the movie at least are not exposed to that because they are just within the small nuclear family. It's yeah, it's it's true. That's another one of those really dark segments in the film that the limo sequence. There's also a feeling at that in that period of the film, right? right. The post nineteen eighty New Year's Eve. Um, that suddenly it's no longer fun anymore. Right. It's like they're having a good time and everything is, is okay and for pleasure. And then it just, it's like the tipping point and uh, into excess. Weirdly, it's because they also start to involve the outside world. Like I said, I think it's Burt Reynolds, so Jack Warner, Burt Reynolds' character is like sees, or sees Roller Girl as a human being. And it's like, this is Roller Girl. I spend all... Right. I spend all the time with her. She's a great person. I know her as a human being. Yeah. But when you bring in someone from real life, the only thing the real that real life person knows about her is watching her have sex naked. And so, like, of course, she's only going to look at her as someone who should get naked and have sex with them. And that's so. I feel like it's so mind blowing as a father figure to Jack Horner that he's going like, show some class. Right. And the guys going like, why would I show class? This is a woman who literally, you know, and she, right. literally is just there for me to watch have sex, and just that giant disconnect between the viewer and the filmmaker comes into play. I think for the first time, and I think that starts to disillusion everybody. That's also what's happening a lot, or we hear about happening a lot in in the world nowadays with people having a hard time connecting for real sex sure. because they're over but younger people especially because they're growing up consuming so much right. pornography in these virtual worlds and right. these other ways that they don't know how to actually physically interact um, with real people or have real expect they have expectations that are beyond what real women and girls look like or men look like and even for themselves right i mean or how it really goes what (laughs) or how it really goes when sex happens yeah exactly aren't you always supposed to be like arching your back and aren't you always supposed to let the cum dribble uh, dribble out of your mouth (laughs) like isn't that sexy or whatever (laughs) i mean sort of impossible standards and it's Again, it's like in the film, there's a tipping point where it just becomes sad. Which yeah. I think Don John, did you see that? No, the, um, Jenny saw it, my wife saw it. She, she says it's incredible. Yeah, it's great. And it's 
it's kind of that, right? There's a point at which it's it's like this, where it's um, just not fun anymore, right. and it becomes an issue that has to be. What's well, so funny? I remember this guy I used to work with was like he was like, yeah, I really don't watch it because like I actually grew up here and I know people who's like, and I was like, oh, okay, come on, and he was like, he's like, yeah, I really like these movies, like it literally it ruined their lives, and I'm like, oh well, that's interesting. You know what I'm saying? Like from a person who lived in Texas and had no connection, you know what I mean? Like, you see that, and then there's that Hot Girls Wanted. Yes. Um, sh- which I have not seen. I have not seen it either. But it's supposed to be great. But it is, right? But yeah, and it's now becoming a documentary series that a friend of mine is working on, and he's just like, it's just the worst thing ever to witness what's going on, and like, takes all the fun out of it. And you're, and you're like, and once you hear enough of those things, you're also just like... Right, well... I mean, I'm not saying it's changed anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I, maybe I watch a little less frequently. But, so, but, but somewhere in my mind... But you're seeing how the sausage is so, made, literally. But somewhere in my mind, I am thinking about, you know, that it's... <laughs> this poor girl. But yeah, it does show. It shows the cost. Eventually, it does show the cost. And even if the cost really does just come from the way you're looking... The way you as a porn star are looking at the world versus the way 99% of your people you're interacting in the world with it which is not something that they're involved in on a like you said when basis. they when they open it up to other people from outside but what also happens is that not only are people from the outside coming in but they are going out into the outside yes. world like him when he solicits when he's trying to right. pick up some money by right. you know right. hustling like that is another example of him like going out into and to the world and what you're saying really strikes me because it is it's like totally unrelated but this is what's coming to mind like in Game of Thrones this idea that you know that there's the lone wolf has difficulty can't survive but the but as a pack that can right. survive and then thinking about that in terms of boogie nights you know yeah. that the pack when they're all together they're thriving yeah but those gunshots that murder suicide that collective trauma and that's right. me from my bullshit psych side it says like that splits everybody up and right. nobody knows how to handle that and they all make the worst decisions. Yeah. And things come home to roost. And, you know, there's the pornographer or the, not, he's not pornographer, the child, the, the pedophile that's been financing all their oh, right. movies, which then, right. you know, is part of why they've got to go to video and, and all of that, which is interesting too, because that is a scene where you see with Jack Horner that he has a line that you don't cross. Yeah, it's true. It is interesting. That that is a line that they just, it's very much like, no, that no, That he no. genuinely, it shows that he genuinely deep down does see what he's doing as innocent. Yeah. And that, you know what I mean? And that he has not accepted any world where, like, what he's doing is actually bad. Like, he genuinely believes that what he's doing is innocent and fun and loving with the people around him. It has merit. And then, uh-huh. like, yeah, and then when he hears this, you're right. It's like, no, any, <laughs> any sane moral person draws a line there and... He's no different than that, and this this other guy was. And I think that was shocking that he's like he could have worked all these years with a guy who didn't have that line drawn in his hand. Yeah, and, and a line that seems so <laughs> totally sane and rational and normal. Yeah. Um, but that's I think also yeah. speaking to it's the categorization, the labeling of people again, because it's like saying that it's it's the false bullshit belief that you can't let people who are gay be teachers because they're going to turn the kids gay, right. right? It's these, or all gay people are pedophiles, right? That's like, no, 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 no. So all pornographers are pedophiles. It's like, 
I imagine it's even more like, dude, we're having enough of a time trying yeah. to legitimize our own business. And like, like you said, we take pride in it. You know, they already think we're part, we're part of that. And yeah. you just... It reminds me, this is just not really pretentious, but there's, in Proust, there's this character of Baron de Charles who is like a pedophile. He's, he's involved in a bunch of things, but it, they talk a lot about the idea that, you know, at the age of 25, he got 1% off the beaten path. And then, you know, a year later, one more percent, one more percent, one more percent. And he, he just made all these tiny little changes, but it got him so far away from what is the societal norm that now he doesn't even realize how far away he is from it. Yeah. And I think that's like what Jack saw when that scene happens is like, oh, this guy got, and then what that guy's excuse to himself was, it was like, oh, come on, Jack, it's not that different than what we all do for a living here. And Jack's like, no, it's quite different. Right. And it's horrible. Right. Yeah. I think that that's an amazing little scene for the character, too, yeah. that you really see that. And, and also, the, the like you said, the father yeah. part of him. That's true. That's true. It is the father part of him. Yeah. Like, these are all somebody's kids. And I really loved what you were saying, too, about the difficulty some people have in separating the person from the person's job. Um, and that's putting it, I guess, really mildly. Sort of the objectification. Right. Um, the dehumanization of the porn actor or performer yeah. or, or whatever you want to call them. And Well, it's obviously what allows the entire industry to exist. It's that depersonalization. Yeah. Because I think you don't look at them as a human being. You're like, oh, you you are fulfilling one job for me. And that is, you know, the, the f- five minutes I need you today. You know what I mean? That's your only... As far as I'm concerned, like, that's your slot in my life. But, like, I remember, though, I mean, there there has been, and obviously we, we're talking about it, it, you know, when we're talking about John Holmes, there is, there are standout people who become, like, <laughs> industry standards that become sort of their own superstars in, right. in that realm. And I think about... Do you think I, that still happens today? I'm curious. Well, I don't know if it happens today. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that because I don't, really, I don't really know. I know that there are people who definitely have... They've got to have followings, right? But, like, from, from my generation of, of porn viewers, I mean, that you know certain names, but... Right. But like you said, that was a time when you had like movies where you had to have a marquee name atop the atop the right. title because you were like going to a video store and you were trying to get in and out of there. Right. And it's like, oh, I've heard of her. Let's do that. So whereas, yeah. So whereas now I think there's the internet, and now it's it's scattershot, and you can find anything you want, and you can without any extra effort. I mean, you typing right. in one thing, it takes exactly as long as you typing in another. You'd have and to so really wonder, stand out. Yeah, and so and I'm and I know there. I mean, like there was that Sasha Gray who like became the like Steven Soderbergh star. Who, oh, okay. Who, you know, and he was she was so big. He was she was in um, the Girlfriend Experience, which was a good movie. But again, but where she played, she, it's not he got her to be. She played <laughs> a high price call girl, and so I mean, obviously, so obviously I'm wrong. Obviously, there are there are girls like well, Sasha Gray but, who but, stand but out, not, maybe not as much to the degree. Because like I remember when the Hustler store, which is now sadly closed on Santa Monica, it's closed on Sunset. On Sunset? It's yeah, closed? they closed it. You know what's interesting? They had great coffee in their coffee they, shop. They had great their smoothies. Coffee was I... so good because I used to work at Mosaic, which was at uh, 9200 Sunset, and so it was just wherever I'd go to lunch on my way home, I'd go in there and get a coffee. They were fucking great anyway. That's a shame. That, not for the sexual reasons. It's a shame because their coffee I is so loved, good. I actually loved the Hustler store. And yeah. and 
I love the pleasure chest, but I really love the hustler store. They they had great, like you said, they had great. <laughs> like their little cafe was really good. And, and books, they had a great selection yeah. of like books, and it, they weren't all you know adult and erotica. They were definitely adult subject matter, but it was very interesting. And so, do you know? You know, finish your hustler story. Oh, so what? Uh, all I was gonna say was, I remember outside of it, they had done like a, uh, like a Grauman's Chinese thing where uh -huh. they had porn stars, finger uh, fingerprints, <laughs> handprints, and footprints in cement, and uh -huh. you know, or tits or I was whatever. Say prints, yeah, and I don't know if those are still there or not uh, on the pavement. What the is there? I, that's a I don't know what it's that's been crazy changed into. Actually, yeah, that's kind of a. Yeah, God. that's where I got Mary, my first Mary, Hitachi Mary, magic wand, yeah, the saying, lesbian power tool. Married and married men with kids don't get down to Sunset Strip too often these days. I'm so depressed <laughs> to know that that happened in my absence. You know, you really, um, you, yeah, well, that's sad. I always look at it, though, like, I'm glad I had those experiences. I don't need to, I don't need them anymore. So, have you ever been into any circus of books here yes. in LA? Okay, so, I... When I first, I loved used bookstores. Like, that's my favorite place in the world. And so my mom, like, my mom, like, came out here on a trip one time when I first moved out here. And I was like, oh, how's my son's life in Los Angeles? How's it going? I hope it's not too degenerate. You know, basically, I'm sure that was, like, the point of her trip. And, you know, and so we, like, we're driving. I think it was this one right here in Silver Lake, actually. We were driving by, and I was like, oh, there's a used bookstore. Let's just go in. And it's something my family enjoys doing is going to bookstores together because we're dorks. And... Like, we we walked in. So do mine. But we walked in, and it was like, oh, yeah, there's a book shelf of books. A bookshelf of books. You know, like Huckleberry Finn. All the, like, oh. all the classes that you have to have in order to qualify as a bookstore. But it's really just a sex store. And, you know, and I just didn't know. Which it is, is the creepiest circus, yeah. It's weird, though, right? It's not, it is it's weird. It's not like a no, nice store. Because I've been in the Puddle Fest. No. Like, that's nice. I mean, and we've like, all been in the... The Hustler store is going in the biggest or the last bookstore. Yeah. The last bookstore in Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, I love used bookstores. But I'm saying I've also been in, like, nice sex stores. Like, the Roger oh, Chester, like, yes. Hustler. Which are, yeah, like, oh, those are, definitely those are just, like, not. They're just nice stores. Like, right. Whatever you say, but there you are. The circus books are like, They make oh. you feel comfortable. Yeah, totally. But, but the circus of books does... You do believe that there's possibly a clown jerking off. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like... No, there is, like, there's... I don't like places that have like beaded doors to rooms. You know, like beaded curtains instead of doors to go to different rooms. Like also, when I'm looking, I'm looking at their front room, and I'm like, based on the things that you have out here for public display, what in God's name are you hiding behind these beaded curtains? Like that's what I'm saying. It was like, is there a clown? Like you said, like it's it's uh. Well, it's like the dark net before there was a dark net. Yeah. I mean, it's like the most fetishy. Weirdest, yeah. It was, no, I was like the darkest of. Right there, I was like, all right, well, let's be on the beaded. I think this is what we're really good for. Yeah, they're beyond the beaded curtain. That'd yeah. be like a great name beyond for the beaded a, curtain. For a, like a ballad like, the doll style. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was friends with John Frankenheimer. Um, so I knew right. John Frankenheimer, and and he was friends with Ron Jeremy. Was he really? And that makes me happy. Yeah, and he tried to put Ron Jeremy Did in like all Ron of Jeremy his. Have tea? Folk. Wasn't John Frankenheimer a big tea guy? Maybe. I thought I heard I all know, these stories. But I like, like this idea of, of I, I'm just, now I'm just picturing like Frankenheimer having tea with I thought I had read these stories him. and I could totally make, be making this up because I just want to believe it. But well, some stories were like in the middle of filming like great action scenes. He's like, well, it's three o'clock, it's tea time. And it's like, you can like take a little break. I cannot confirm that. I do not know that of him. 
I do know that there was a time in his life when he was an alcoholic, and yeah. so then he was he sober. Maybe there was tea, t- or maybe tea time was after he got sober, right? Maybe that was part of it. I like to believe this one. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so they were friends, and he'd try to put Ron Jeremy in like all of his films. Uh-huh. And so when he was doing Ronin, he was getting. Ron Jeremy, and I was working for um, Mancuso at the time, so he was getting Ron Jeremy's Uh little cameo in it. And a friend of mine, all of her adult life, her porn-watching life, had been fascinated by Ron Jeremy, and she was a very active and open young lady who was about to hit the 100 mark, and she wanted him to be her 100. that's, That's incredible. So I introduced them, and we made that happen. And at that That's time, phenomenal. yeah, yeah, for so many reasons. <laughs> and they, they, he was so I met him as well and spent did time she, with did him. Did she proposition him that way? Yes, and he was she, was she openly just like, I want you to be number 100? Yes, and he thought it was the most adorable thing. It is kind of adorable, you know, and it, it, they were, they were adorable actually. And he, you know, like you're saying. There's the objectification of them, right? Uh, or this this idea of who they are. And he was tremendously insecure, as I'm sure most people know know of him. But, I mean, he was just such a nice guy who just wanted so badly to be liked. Wanted yeah. to. He's still with us, you know. But they became... But he no longer needs it. He's self-actuated now. Oh, is he? He no longer needs to just roll up. <laughs> yeah, he's, you know... So I went to dinner with him and with other people in the industry who I didn't know. It was just like all of us hanging out and yeah. having dinner. It's just their world, and their they had to be kind of insular for the same reasons that you're talking about. But yeah. I have a Ron Jeremy story. I was at I want to say it was the San Antonio airport, or maybe it was DFW, but and they'd oversold the flight. Either they'd oversold it or whatever. But one of the names on the thing was R. Jeremy. On the like wait list, uh-huh. and I was like, oh, ha, 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 ha. like ha ha ha, our Jeremy, like around there, and then like actually he was there, and he was like, and somebody literally, and you know they did the whole thing where it was like, you know, uh, we've oversold the flight. If you, if you let go, we'll give you free tickets, about five hundred dollar voucher, whatever. And someone saw Ron Jeremy and was like, I will give up my ticket if it goes to Ron Jeremy. <laughs> And they said okay, and like they did it, and the guy and he and Roger was really sweet, like signed an autograph, was like thank you so much, and but it was just like, I was like wow, I was like I'm I'm boarding past you know a thirty two, and Ron Jeremy is standby, <laughs> and it was great, um, but it was fascinating. I mean, it's but it, but it was also genuinely weird because you do celebrities, they're just like us, exactly. <laughs> But like, but you because he does occupy like a slot in your life, which uh-huh. is like this weird thing. This of, weird legend of of a thirteen inch cock or whatever yeah, it and, is. And I, it's like, but that's what's so funny is like to me when I was growing up, I didn't even know the details because like I, he was like he's, he's pretty old at this point, right? Yeah, I'm saying I mean, he was definitely like his, he was a legend 60s. of like the generation before mine. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? So right. It's like. To me, oh yeah, he's like, a legend of my generation. I just you. think it's fucking great. This this like overweight balding guy. Is oh yeah, the hedgehog. Hairy. I mean, that's how he's known. Yeah, that's hilarious. His, that's hilarious. and he would have little stuffed hedgehogs that that's he would hilarious. give people. He kind of shatters any stereotype of what you physically what? need to look like. And you know, he was like a kindergarten teacher. He was wearing like sweats and a black t-shirt. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, he's not. He's. 
He's not a styly guy. He's <laughs> much com- more comfortable wearing nothing. Yeah. Right? But he's um, he's definitely a character. It's, it's interesting that nobody's ever... I guess they've made a documentary about him, but... How did Frankenheimer meet him? Because he was John Frankenheimer and he said, I want to meet Ron Jeremy? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I know I knew back in the day, but this was the early aughts, I guess. Probably, maybe 99, 2000. Uh-huh. So. Oh, yeah, Ron Yeah, I'd have to go. I mean, yeah. so that's almost 20 years ago. I'd have to go back and look at my journals and that's see what I, I wrote more details about those things. But, yeah, I mean, it's interesting... He, he's definitely a legend. But that was the other thing about my friend, having that, what do you call it, dream? Yeah. <laughs> Fantasy? Yeah. Whatever. It's kind of, it's, I'm really, I'm really happy that that was able to happen. Like, <laughs> like dreams do come true, people. Um, but. It's like Make a Wish with Jenny Wilson. <laughs> yeah, right. So right into us now. So. One of the things she loved about him was that he has this reputation of being... Did they, like, actually have a relationship? They kind of did. I wouldn't say they were, like, exclusive or anything, right? (laughs) Obviously. Ronnie, just assume. Yeah, I mean, they were... She wasn't into having a relationship, but there was a point in which I... I, but it, they became it, it friendly. Yes, it was, it was yes, not just a yes. Thing. It was not just a one night event. Right. Okay. They continued. They stayed in contact That's after that. And and I'm not really in frequent contact with her, so I don't know whether or not he, you know, whether or not they still are. But she's married now, and you know, it's a whole other lifetime for all right. of us. Right. You know, who knows what he's <laughs> doing. That is incredible. But, yeah, but he had a reputation of being, like, just really respectful to women and, like, really nice and t- took care of back to what we were talking about with Bogey Nights, like, the, that caring and that women really felt safe with him. Yeah. He can fuck hard or he can fuck, like, really gently. He's the best. All women in porn wanted to work with Ron Jeremy because he treated everybody so well, which is sort of like the whole family it's respect, you know. No, it's just, yeah. it, it not, it's totally not odd. It's the most human thing in the world, but it's just... Odd because you just don't, I don't spend time thinking about no. Ron Jeremy <laughs> because he does occupy like this strange slot. It's fascinating. So do you think that this movie will stand up over time? Well, stand up over time is a good movie? Yes. I mean, it is a good movie. Art lasts. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm interested actually to see because it is so of a time, you know what I mean? It's about a transition that's like nine transitions ago, how, how long it will Right, because it Stick never around. really does get to Blu-ray or computer or internet, and like wonder what happens to all those people as those changes start to happen. I I'm interested because it deserves to be remembered. It deserves to like have a long life, you know. But there are things like when I watch like There Will Be Blood, where I look at it and I go like, Oh, this movie will be talked about in fifty years because it was about religion and oil, which is what America was about when the movie was made. And it's a great, you know what I mean. It's a big commentary on all of it. Yeah. And I don't know if Boogie Nights is that. Maybe it is. I was really young when it came out, so it was not, I, w- I wasn't processing it. I didn't see it until years after it came out. I wasn't processing it as a cultural statement or a cultural event in the same way. But it, I would have had I been a little bit older or more mature or more, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. No, it, it does. At the same time, it is a time capsule piece. Yeah. I and mean, it's 77 to like 83 or something, and it came out in 97. Right. Which, which is another thing, like, about There Will Be Blood and stuff, too, that I think kind of 
gives it longevity because right. it is period pieces. Yeah. Although I know we, uh, although I'm saying that and I, I'm now thinking about like period pieces that I look back on and go like, wow, that, that was really poorly done or yeah. you know, that they don't hold up for one reason or another. I mean, like you said, artistically, I think it's going to hold, I think it's going to hold up. Boogie Nights? Yeah. Yeah. See, this, this is hi-fi, okay? High fidelity. You know what that means? That means this is the highest quality fidelity. High five. Those are two very important things to have in the stereo system. I think it's interesting just watching it, re-watching it now, thinking of it through the lens of how we how we get our porn today, right. how porn is delivered today. And that was in 97 when it was made. I mean, it was still VHS. It was still VHS. That's what's interesting. You're right. Is that watching it then would have been very different from watching it now because the medium has just it's it, just but, saying, but it, when it was made VHS was the medium on which yeah. you watched it yeah well DVDs I guess DVDs and I, I think maybe Blu-rays were starting oh no not even close when the Blu-rays because DVDs I feel like DVDs didn't really hit until kind of like the Fight Club and Matrix DVDs came out and Matrix was ninety nine okay yeah because I definitely think the nineties is being DVD time versus to think of it as being CD time. Yeah. Yeah, CDs before no, DVDs. Yeah, I don't think DVDs were really hit until like 98, 99. In a way that that's what everyone had, I'm saying. In a way then when did Blu-rays hit then? Recently. I just got my first Blu-ray player two months ago. Really? Yeah. I feel like I've had one for a really long time. I think we have, but I think it only now do people really feel like, oh, this might actually stick around. Which it won't, because streaming is going to be everything, but that's another conversation. No, it, it, yeah, that's... But it, Blu-ray is fucking awesome. But I, for a long time I held out, because I was like, I just don't know if this is going to stick. And I'm cheap. And the combination of those two factors really kept me out of the store. Well, it really depends on, to me, what I'm looking for. Right. And nowadays, where I would have bought a DVD or a Blu-ray, I will just stream it. Yeah. Or, or I'll rent it right. on Amazon Prime HD. No, I think, yeah, now for me to, like... Like, I just bought uh, Blow Up on Blu-ray. I haven't watched it yet, but because it's like, has good commentaries. And has good, like, it's, a, it's an event. So like, you know, it's like, I really got Blu-ray because the 25th anniversary of JFK was only available on Blu-ray. Yeah, I'm going to have to borrow really, that to listen to yeah, the commentary. Because really I, I know that movie well enough that I could sit down and listen to it with the yeah, commentary. Yeah. I feel like with a movie like Boogie Nights... I, had, I need to watch Comedy Boogie Nights now. Yeah, I don't have the Blu-ray of it. We just streamed it. Right. But had I had that, I don't. I wouldn't have listened to it because I was. I mean, it's three hours. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much content. So I also want to thank you for rewatching it. And <laughs> it was a blast. I love having good reasons to watch good movies. But I. It is funny because it is so long, but it's really one of those movies you can delve deep into. It. I feel like the only time I watch commentaries are now or when I watch a movie and I'm like. All right, I'm going to devote the next four days to just kind of be obsessed with this movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just, like, watch every commentary about it, read every article about it, really just, like... Well, that's part of your work. Yeah. That's part of you working. Yeah, but I think that's... Boogie Nights is definitely worthy of going down a rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. And I I hope that people will come back to it. I mean, I I can't imagine they won't because P.T. Anderson has such a wide scope of work and will continue hopefully to be doing that and I mean I imagine he's already taught in film schools and oh yeah just, that's a lot of people you're right man God, we're old 
<laughs> like that, that was 20 years ago almost. Boogie Nights. And he started even, I mean, Hard Eight was a few years before that. Like, he's been making movies for a long time, which is funny because I always think of him as part of the... His, for me, he'll always be the young generation filmmakers because he's just one generation ahead of me. Who else do you categorize him with? Like Tarantino, his contemporaries. Linklater, Robert Rodriguez. I'm saying, I'm saying these are the guys who... Just that whole crew that came up through like the Miramax New Line group of filmmakers. Would you Wes, call that Wes Anderson? I would put in there even if he's a little bit later, but he's not. He's not really a little bit later, is he? No. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. When was what? Bottle Rocket? Bottle Rocket was the nineties. Yeah, I I yeah, remember. Tim Balls was two thousand, so he already made a couple movies before that. Um, so yeah, I would say Wes Anderson. But I just like there was that whole crew, but I really feel like where they were really doing really interesting movies in the studio system and like yes it was for the smaller companies like Miramax and and New Line that were owned by larger studios but they were doing it within the studio system and they were really like getting to do that and you just can't now he's you know PTA does movies through Megan Ellison's company now and like thank god for Megan Ellison because otherwise you know she did Linklater's last movie she is oh <laughs> she's clearly the same generation I am but she just worships all these people and it's right so who wouldn't want to do yeah, that who wouldn't if you want could. to finance the movies yeah like she did the ma- you know she did the master of the PT Anderson movie and she did and I think the studios just aren't doing those anymore. I mean maybe they'll distribute them for you, but they're not going to be putting up their money. Yeah, I was going to say give those filmmakers the money outside of obviously Tarantino because he's the best of all of them and his movies make money. Do you actually believe he's the best out of all of them? Yeah. You personally, or do you think that that's how he's viewed? I think he's the best out of all of them consistently. Yeah. Do you think that Boogie Nights could get made today? No. Not by a student. No. And I actually just went to my Oliver Stone JFK. I just watched Natural Born Killers a couple weeks ago. Oh, and I was like, how did, how did Warner Brothers put out that movie? Like, I can't. That is mind-blowing to me, the way the business works today, to think that I don't care who you are as a filmmaker. I don't care if you just made JFK. Like, there's no world that the studio is letting you make and then distribute. I'm saying under their banner of production costs and everything of making something like Natural Born Killers. And you're right, Boogie... Boogie Nights? No, I don't... Not with studio money, no. There's no way. And without studio money, how could you make something kind of that expansive? Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. It's a very expansive movie that like had to have a large shooting schedule. And, Absolutely. Uh, and that cast. That's what I'm saying. Like, because even the people in the cast, okay, maybe they weren't as big as they are now, but they were still all very recognizable. They were names, yeah. And they were people that... No, I don't think it get made today, but I don't think... What it, Most what, movies from that time period we get made today. What's the change that would have stopped it? Would stop a movie like that? Like, Or what was the shift? Do you know? Can Is there anything that stands out to you? or Giant corporations owning studios now. You know, and it makes sense. And then, you know, and to make a dent in their quarterly report, you gotta make a movie that's gonna make a billion dollars. I mean, if, uh, if your boss is... True, if you don't have a hundred million dollar yeah. opening weekend... Yeah, if your boss is... If you're the studio head and your boss is head of a massive corporation and that's who you're trying to make an impression with, like, I don't... I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. And that's how it is. And I think that's one of the reasons is, like, I'm, there's no world where Boogie Nights makes the amount of money that matters. So if, if Jack Horner's dream is to make that film, what is your dream? To, make, to live Jack Horner's life. <laughs> to be Jack Horner, porn director. Yeah. <laughs> I love how... But that was, is yeah. he really the director in it, or was William H. Macy the director? Is it? No, William H. I mean, Macy was, was the first, first he was AD. A, he right? was the first AD. Yeah, yeah. But it's just, there's just no directing going on. Yeah. I'm so genius about it. 
Oh, it's uh, terrible. But it's like there's a they're looking at footage at one point. Or is, or is he point. perfect? Right. <laughs> Fine line between genius and crap. He doesn't need to be felt as a director. He lets the actors tell the story. There's no fancy camera moves. He's he's Ozu. He's Ozu the porn director. Oh my god. He's genius. We're going to make film history. Not here on videotape. That's it. That I think that's it. Thanks. Thank you for sitting down. I, Thank you I for look me. forward to fun. doing this again. We'll Let's have do to. It again. Yeah. Let's do a Paul Verhoeven movie. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, I want to do, uh, do Basic Instinct. And, oh, I love Basic Instinct. Yeah, I kind of want to. I love any of the Michael Douglas series of the, like, I'm a horrible. Yes. His character is like, I'm a horrible person who's done a ton of horrible things in my life, but I didn't <laughs> do a terrible thing this time, and fuck you for implying I did. Like, that is his entire character in so many movies, and it's just, and they're my favorite. I'm not, I don't mean that facetiously or ironically. Like, those are my favorite movies. That, Which is your favorite Black of Rain. those? Black Rain is my, Black Rain is one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Okay. When I did Las Vegas, oh, yeah, yeah. Michael Douglas, like, I couldn't even, I love Black Rain so much that I couldn't even bring it up with we talked about all those other movies, but I was like, I can't even, like, oh. I'm so in awe of Black Ray that I cannot talk to you about Black Ray. Oh, <laughs> that's too bad. He probably would have No, but, it. yeah, no, Michael Douglas really is, like, one of my all-time favorite actors in the fucking dream. So. But I love that whole, that whole portion of his career of the... Where he's playing that character. Over yeah, and, and he was such he was such a sexy. He's, de- he's Detective Nick something in Basic <laughs> Instinct and... Black Rain. <laughs> he's he's Nick Conklin in Black Rain and he's Nick something else. It might be like Nick Cannon or something. <laughs> Very close to Nick Conklin. Detective <laughs> Nick Conklin in Nick Cannon? Yeah. Nick Cannon. He's Nick Cannon. Uh, <laughs> what can't Nick Cannon do? He can even so play true. Michael Douglas it's in so the past. True. Or is Michael Douglas playing Nick Cannon now? I've never seen either of them in the same place oh, at the same good. time. <laughs> but you know, with genius. You see, I have a whole... I'm going to take this to Alex Jones for the next podcast. I have a whole Nick Cannon thing. Well, actually, Tom and I both do, but, like, how he is the new generation of Ryan Seacrest. He's just... He uh, is an industry on himself. He's, like, the most prolific host. Is he? Kind I of, know that. But he's also actor. He's, like, just for being Nick Cannon. I'm Nick Cannon. I'm welcoming everyone's home. 18 million to be exact. He's so good I know at people, being it's so funny because I feel like Ryan Seacrest has developed from the person that people were kind of like, oh, Ryan Seacrest, he's so cheesy to like, or maybe this is just me because I work here or something, but I'd be like, I'd be like no, he's not. Like, he's literally the hardest working man in show business. I, I have can't, so I, much respect yes, for him. I can't believe what he does. Like, it is amazing the energy he has and like the professionalism. He is, I've never seen him screw up. Like, he is a straight professional at every single thing he does. I mean, he does. And there's something, he still has that radio show in the morning. Yes. Here. Every morning I'm like, like 5 a.m. or but something. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> I really want to say to him, like, what are you doing awake at 5 a.m. on a radio show? You're Ryan Seacrest. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's like, but, it, but he's a professional. You want to shake him. You're Ryan fucking Seacrest. Take a vacation. But he's a professional. He's a true entertainer in the old, like, Dick Clark sense. Which yes. Is like, no, I have a radio show. I have a television show. I have reality show. I have, like, I, I <clears throat> it is my goal to be a presence in all of these different aspects of the industry. And that's a real businessman. That's a real professional. And I like, I couldn't respect him more. It's so funny. Cause I, when you, when you like everybody, I first heard Ryan Seacrest through American Idol. I mean, yeah. for everybody who's not from LA, 
who heard him on the radio for years and years and years. But right. It was like, for me, I was like, I was like, who's this guy doing American Idol? The kind of the more I learned about him, I was like, my God, American Idol is lucky to have this man. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I have I have very similar feelings about him. I always think we should get little wristbands that are like WWRSD. Like, what would Ryan Seacrest do? He's so great. I could get up in the morning at like 9 a.m. and I'm like pissed that I'm up and I'm thinking like, Ryan Seacrest has been up for hours, Ryan's damn been it. crushing it on AM radio for the last... And he's on to his so, next job. He's FM. I think he's up. He's okay. big time. He's FM. Yeah. But, this isn't Kiss or something. But it's funny because you're right. It's, I don't know how we got on Ryan Seacrest, but... Through Nick Cannon, oh, through right. Michael Douglas, but... Yeah. <laughs> the only possible way you can get from Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> it's like 10 degrees of separation. Okay, Alaska Maple. I'm going to wrap this up. I love apostrophe Alaska. I know. I'm going to have to make it an image of that. <laughs> All right. All right, class. No running in the halls. Is that your thing? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what would you say to a group of kids who are leaving? Like, think about it. Like, or what part did your high school teachers, like, call after you? The bell rings and the kids are, you know, it's just like... Is this like... But this is like a sex ed class. Yeah, but it's like... Yeah, I mean, it could be anything. You could be, like, no roller skating in the halls today for Roller Girl or... <laughs> Or always remember that cocaine will make your flaccid, your penis flaccid. If you do too much cocaine, you won't be able to have good sex. Your porn career is over. I, would, I love the idea of my high school teacher screaming that after her kids every <laughs> single day as they leave class. Remember kids, cocaine makes your penis flaccid. And by the end of the school year, they're all like mouthing it along with Cocaine her, like, yeah, causes impotence. Yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> Oh my god, is that Miss Wilson with her fucking cocaine faucet? Oh. But in a way, there's something about that that, like, Boogie Nights does. It's yes. like, it's making it mundane. It's like, you know, desensitization in a way that I'm okay with. Because it, yeah. it's making the people real. Yeah. But the, and it's just funny. Yeah, like, it's just, it is. It's just a genuinely funny movie. It is movie. a funny movie. Some serious subjects. But, but it's hard to... Like, I feel like not enough... I mean, it's hard to find directors who can really do their being funny with their compositions or their being funny with their blocking or their being funny. It's not just, they're not just relying on the actors to be funny right. and to like tell, deliver funny lines of dialogue or like do great You're improv. getting the sense they're, of humor. They're, yes, they're genuinely doing something funny with their composition. I would like, say David O. Russell oh, he's, uh, he's and Soderbergh yeah. are two people that come to mind as like people, other people that do it really well that... Ben Stiller does it really well oh, as a director. Yeah. He hasn't really directed anything in a while, though. He did Walter Mitty, right? Did he oh, did Mitty? he direct it? Um, I have to see that. I actually they're, think it was pretty good. I mean, Wes Anderson, obviously. Wes, Wes Anderson, Anderson yeah. He's the king of it. But, I mean, there's... It's hard to find directors who are... Like, but who aren't Anderson, just trying to be funny with what's going on with the actors. But it's that... I think the reason why Wes Anderson didn't pop into my head in that way is because... Even with the sophisticated knowing that Wes Anderson projects or, right. or puts into, there's something whimsical about it. Oh, yeah. And like, I don't yeah. think of a Russell Soderbergh or P.T. Anderson as. No, they're great. That, yeah, no, they're there's, down. There's, they're, there's that, they're ready to get down and dirty. That, that resonates with me so much that, that beauty in the darkness, right? That's yeah. like something that is really a theme to me in my life. And like, when I see it, it's like I'm attracted to that uh -huh. darkness. It's just something so beautiful and funny about it yeah that's why i love the smiths yeah. and then morrissey i think is hilarious and people think that's weird but i do i you know it's like soderbergh always has all these 
stand-ups and comics and just playing these straight roles in the background. He's also great to follow on Twitter. I don't think I follow him. It's like Bituation, I think, is his. Bituation. Okay, I'll have to look. He's holding, obviously, he's very funny. He's so where can we find you on Twitter? I am, I think I'm just at Kyle Pennycamp. Okay. All right. So follow, if you want to follow, follow Kyle, me. follow Kyle. And you can follow me at, actually, my porn name, which is at, at is not part of my porn name. But that, that would be, be really great. funny, oh, though. Yeah, that's the next, that's the next evolution. <laughs> yeah, they put it. You have to put at before. Uh, yeah, so my Twitter handle is oh, actually we're my make porn. A million dollars <laughs> by doing this. So it's Pinky Anderson, P I N K I E, uh, not Anderson. Pinky oh. Avalon. Pinky Avalon. I know this. Pinky Avalon. That's my porn name. <sighs> Let's do another take of this one. Yeah. Okay. Let's start all over. No, I think it's better. I okay. want people to know I, I'm flawed. This isn't all. This isn't well, all now perfection. You should, just, now you should just do Pinky Anderson as well. Pinky Anderson should be my new... You should just both. Maybe they're twins. You can twins. use one as like an alter ego. You can use one as like... Well, Pinky Avalon kind of is my... She's sort of my Sasha Fierce, but... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she's really my Sasha. My <laughs> the billion records sold. <laughs> hey, it's okay to dream. <laughs> if we learn anything today. All right. <laughs> Cocaine causes impotence. I, I think maybe she did too much coke. Oh, do you think so, doctor? No running in the halls. Flaccid penis. Flaccid penis. Don't slam your flaccid penis in your locker door. That, that's what she should call it. Okay, that's it. Stop masturbating in your socks. Okay, class, here are some things we learned in this episode of Cinema Sex Ed. First off, the Miller test. It narrowed the definition of obscenity and was the result of a 1973 Supreme Court verdict that established that anything lacking, quote, serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value, unquote, is not necessarily protected by the First Amendment. It set contemporary community standards as the criterion for obscenity, which gave adult filmmakers more creative license, justification for bigger budgets and profits, and established a Hollywood mindset for the golden age of American porn. Secondly, there's a golden age of American porn, or porno chic, Generally regarded as being from 1969 to 1984, it was a period of time when a social conversation began considering if adult entertainment could be elevated to the level of art, and if there was a place for it in Hollywood or mainstream America. Three, Betamax was partially driven out by porn. With the advent of video and VHS, not only did shooting on film become cost prohibitive, but it pretty much ran the Sony Betamax off the market, regardless of the fact that Betamax, I guess, had a better quality of product. Number four, there's a subgroup of porn centered all around laundromats. Number five, the San Fernando Valley has been the center of the adult entertainment industry for decades and continues to be. Number six, cocaine causes impotence. And although it might feel sexy by increasing levels of dopamine, that's our main pleasure chemical, it constricts and tightens the veins needed for an erection while reducing sperm count and mobility. You know, on, on top of all that other potential for, you know, stroke, heart attack, death. Number seven, Vivid Entertainment is the largest adult movie studio, but it isn't publicly traded. Number eight, the total current income of U.S. adult entertainment is often estimated at 10 to 13 billion dollars a year. Number nine, 
Cinematically, we learned Boogie Nights was based on a short film P.T. Anderson made when he was a senior in high school called The Dirk Diggler Story. Number 10. PTA wanted the movie to be three hours and NC-17. Number 11. Burt Reynolds did not enjoy working with Paul Thomas Anderson. Number 12. Everyone has one special thing. What's yours? Cinema Sex Ed. I want to thank Kyle Pennekamp again for sitting down with me. We could have talked for four hours about this movie and the cultural impact of adult entertainment and Paul Thomas Anderson, for starters. I mean, we didn't even get around to talking about the fact that he's married to Maya Rudolph. I could hit myself for not talking about Michael Penn's music and his little cameo as the sound engineer for Dirk and Reed when they're recording. You got the touch. We didn't talk about Don Cheadle, one of my favorite characters in the whole movie. Buck Swope with his cowboy clothes and dreams of owning a stereo equipment store. We didn't talk about AIDS and safe sex because the movie doesn't, and any exploration wouldn't have been accurate to the period of the story. But I think it's important to say that although there are exceptions to the rule, the adult film industry has been consistently ahead of the curve on promoting awareness and education while implementing strict regulations for condom use and regular testing. We'd love to keep the conversation going. What else did we miss? We'd love to hear your thoughts, feelings, impressions, anything that came up for you while listening to this episode on Boogie Nights. We want to know where you might agree or disagree with anything we've been talking about. So send us your feedback at cinemasexed at gmail.com. Maybe we'll give you a shout out in future episodes. To keep up with the changes we're making in future episodes, you can also find Cinema Sex Ed on Twitter at cinesexed. We took your ma out of it, so that's C-I-N-E-S-E-X-E-D. And you can find Kyle on Twitter at Kyle Penningcamp, and you can find me, as you heard, at, at Pinky Avalon. So see you next time on Cinema Sex Ed, and no running in the halls. I can do. You don't know what I can do, what I'm gonna do, what I'm gonna be. You don't know I'm good. I have good things that you don't know about.